12. So Christ is... uh, (laughs) Christ has just entered into Jerusalem, verse 12, and went to the temple of God. All right. Picture this. Christ is, uh, his praises are being sung. The palms are being laid. This is Palm Sunday, the, the, the week of Christ's death. Now, speaking of Christ's death, we'll talk about it a little later. Some believe that Christ died on Friday. I am not of that opinion. I believe Christ died on Thursday. There are some who believe Christ died on Wednesday. We will have this conversation at another time. We're not there yet. But uh, it is the week of. This is the Sunday before Christ's death burial, and resurrection. So Christ comes into the, temp- the city, and what is the first thing that he does? He's got this large crowd around him, right? All these folks who are singing his praises, the children, the men, the women, the Pharisees are upset. They're not singing his praises, but they're nearby. Inevitably, they're going to follow Christ for a little bit, right? They're not maybe going to follow him for days or maybe even hours, but initially, they're going to wonder, right, Christ is coming into Jerusalem. They think he's coming in to become king. They're praising him as king. I have no doubt that their curiosity got the best of them, and this crowd is following him to his next destination. Christ makes a beeline to the temple. Why? What's at the temple? Maybe Christ is going to do some worship, hold a worship service, right? No, Christ, unfortunately, is going to do something that has already been done, cleansing of the temple. Now, you might think that the cleansing of the temple only happened one time. If you read the Gospels, you will find it is mentioned twice. And the other time it's mentioned is at the beginning of Christ's ministry. Not at the very beginning. Remember, the very beginning was when he got baptized. The very beginning was when he went into the wilderness for 40 days. The very beginning was when he came and met some of the original apostles. But shortly after Christ's public appearance and the wedding of Cana, not long, you find Christ going to Jerusalem and cleansing the temple. So what's happening at the temple? Well, people are buying and selling animals changing money, money changers, which means if someone came in with currency from another country, they wanted to buy an animal, they had to use the currency of Jerusalem, of Israel, to buy that animal, so they would be money exchangers. But it seems that Christ's anger is not due to the fact that animals are being purchased for sacrifice. I don't believe Christ is upset because people are getting the currency of that current town. I believe there is deception, lies, theft going on. The money changers, it's not a whole lot of detail given to us. I can only assume that the money changers are not giving a fair price. It is supply and demand. These people are here at the temple to worship. They didn't bring animals. They got to buy the animals. The money changers know there's not a whole lot of places in town to change money, and they're here to worship, and they're in a religious mindset, and people usually who are in a religious mindset are more generous. They think, oh, it's all for God, easily taken advantage of. And I believe these money changers are doing exactly that. They're saying we can charge them a higher rate of exchange, and they won't care because they're just going to chalk it up as part of their worship experience. And then those selling the lambs and the doves, and if you're really rich, the ox, same thing. Oh, they could buy this outside of town for significantly less, but they're not outside of town. They're at the temple. We are here to make some money. So these money changers and these animal sellers are not doing this for the benefit of the worshipers. They're not trying to make it easy or accessible so that these Jews who are at the temple to sacrifice can do so in a way that does not cause too much havoc in their life. That is not the goal of these temple workers. They are here to make a buck. 
at the expense of the worshipers in the place of worship. I have found that a lot of Christians have one common gripe when it comes to churches in general, across denominations, across religions. And that is, it seems to me like the church is too focused on money. I've heard that often. The pastor preaches on it often. The, the uh, offering is taken, and if, if not enough money is put in, it's taken again, right? You ever been in a service where the pastor says, oh, not enough in there, try that again. Put it back and go back again. I have, I've never been in a service like that, I have been told of people who've been in a service, they said at a revival, uh, and I've heard this story more than one time by different people from different churches, they said, so the offering plate was passed, the pastor glanced at it and said, there's not enough in there, pass it again. And so it seems that would be a problem, as it should. It seems that people are getting the impression that when you come to worship, it's not just about Christ, it's about how much can be left behind, financially. I'm not overly um, thrilled about the fact that a lot of Christians are getting that impression. I believe that, unfortunately, that impression is being received because for some churches, that is what it is. For some churches, for some Christians, and I'm not even talking about the pastors, even members in the church, money is too high up on their list of priorities. We need money to pay for ministries. We need money for new carpet. We need money for outreach. We need money for uh, whatever it is we think this church needs. The problem is when you keep putting money in everything, people will believe that money is more important than them. Now, I am convinced that exactly is what is the case here. Money is more important than the worshipers. Christ goes to the temple. The multitude... We're told, uh, says, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. Verse 12, he goes to the temple, cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, overthrew the tables of money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Same thing done at the beginning of his ministry. Almost exactly. Why is it they didn't learn their lesson? Oh, keep in mind, it's been about three years. Maybe these are different money changers. Maybe the first ones did learn their lesson, and someone filled the void. (laughs) Someone saw, oh, they're not making a buck. I can. Maybe it's the same ones, and they've lost their fear of God. Christ needing to teach the same lesson, possibly to the same people, but definitely in the same place. Don't ever let that be said for you, that Christ would need to go to such extreme measures to teach you the same lesson that has already been offered. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. He doesn't leave the temple. Christ casts the fakers out, and for a time, parks there. For a time, the temple is what it was intended to be, a place where people connected with God. That was the purpose of the temple. It was not a place of business. It was not a place of popularity or prestige. It was a place to connect with God. Can you connect with God outside church, worship? Of course you can. Can you connect with God outside the temple? Yes. They were told to. They were told to spend time in the word of God throughout the week. They were told to teach the word of God to their children. But when you went to the temple... 
you should be able to expect to connect with God. You can worship God outside of a church service. You should. You can connect with God outside of a church service. You should. But you should also be able to expect that when you come to a worship service with God's people, that you would be able to connect with God. So what is it that's keeping us from connecting? Maybe it's us. Maybe we claim we want to connect, but we don't really want to connect. Maybe it's others, money changers, who are making the worship service something different than about Christ, making it about money, making it about an experience that, well, if you, their hope is if you feel a, a, a great experience in the worship service, maybe you'll come back. Maybe you'll give more. Maybe you'll bring friends. And so since I think that there are some who are looking for a Disney World experience in a church, something that when they leave, they felt like something amazing happened. And churches can provide that. Pastors can provide that. Look, anyone who knows business, anyone who knows the human condition, understands you can create the opportunity to feel something. I could do that. I know human condition, I know the human heart, and I know people well enough that I could create an opportunity where you felt something. The problem is, me creating it means it's not God. These money changers, these sellers of animals are here to create something for you, create an easy experience, but you're not really connecting with God. Christ throws them out and says, I'm here. Now come connect with me. I don't want to ever be in a place where God is having to throw me out so people can connect with him. I don't want anyone in our church to ever be in a place where God has to throw them out so others can connect with God. Do not ever stand between God and the worshiper. The chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did as he heals those who came. The children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were sore displeased extremely upset. They were already upset earlier. They already cried out to God at Christ and said, tell them to stop worshiping. Now they followed Christ and are getting more upset because the worship doesn't stop. It continues now, even to the children. It continues. And said unto him, hearest thou what these say? The young children. Do you understand now they're, 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 accusing Christ of manipulating children, of using children for his own selfish gains. How dare you, Christ? How dare you confuse and deceive these poor, naive, innocent children into singing your praises, you fraud? Christ responds, Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, Thou hast perfected praise. Christ doesn't defend himself. Christ doesn't attack them. He states, well, according to Old Testament scripture, which you should know, praise comes from all ages, including the young. It is obvious, it is implied in this statement that Christ deserves the praise. There's no need for him to defend himself against these accusers 
that he might be manipulating children to do what children naturally do. Children naturally praise. Have you noticed that? They praise you. They praise themselves. They praise everything and everyone. Everything to a child is awesome. Every day is the best day ever. Every experience is amazing. Every adult that's even remotely cool is very cool, right? For children, it is easy for young children. I'm not talking middle school. I'm not even talking necessarily fourth or fifth. I'm talking young children. It is easy for them to praise. What I think might be going on is these Pharisees are a little jealous that the children are praising him and not them. I don't think the Pharisees are overly concerned that the children are praising someone. They're used to it, walking by with their nice clothes and their heads up high and the children stopping their plays and their games and waving and wanting to, to shake hands that the Pharisees ignore them because they're too above the children and the children pointing at him and whispering, say, oh, there goes the Pharisee. He's so cool. He's so amazing. The Pharisees are used to this kind of praise. They're upset that it's now being directed towards Christ. He left them, went out of the city into Bethany, and lodged there. What an interesting thing to do. Why would Christ leave Jerusalem? Why would he go to an outskirt community of Bethany, near Jerusalem, but not in Jerusalem? To what reason? I believe that Christ knew today was not the day to die. Obviously, he knows that. And Christ was not there to push the crowd past their breaking point. That was going to come later. Christ was here to die. But Christ had prophecies to fulfill. Christ had a few more things to accomplish before the day of his death. So Christ, in his infinite wisdom, realized this is not the best place to sleep tonight. And he leaves Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you something. If Christ, in all of his sovereignty and his power and his wisdom, could have stopped this town from mugging him, mobbing, and dragging him to the cross that night, and chose not to. And in his wisdom decided, I'll just remove myself from the danger until the deed has to be done. Why do we as Christians think we should do any less? I'm not saying that as Christians we should run from every scenario that might cause us harm, but why would we purposely place ourselves in situations that we know may not end well. When you have the chance to seek peace, seek peace. Don't go looking for a fight. And don't say, well, I'm not looking for a fight, but if it comes to me, I'm not going anywhere. You know, Christ left Jerusalem. God himself left Jerusalem, not in cowardice. He was going to die, but it was not yet. So he found Bethany and lodged there. In the morning... He returns to the city. Which city? Jerusalem. Well, why go back? Because as we know, often horrible things happen at night. When Christ is arrested, tried, when will that happen? At night. The wicked don't generally act in the day. Walking down a street in Meriden at 2 p.m. is not the same in certain parts, at 2 a.m. And wisdom would tell you that just because it's safe during the afternoon does not mean it's safe in the middle of the night. Christ leaves Jerusalem at night 
because it becomes unsafe at night. Returns in the day. On his way, we're told, he saw a fig tree in the way. He came to it on the way to Jerusalem, found nothing thereon. The fig tree had leaves, it had branches, but no fruit. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said, oh, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead. Verse 19, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth, forward forever. Jesus Christ sees this fig tree and he (laughs) curses the fig tree, you might say. Now, to what end would Christ have to curse the fig tree? What has the fig tree done to Christ? It's just a tree. Didn't make a decision. Has no will. Has no soul. A curse doesn't affect the fig tree in any sense that the fig tree can feel or know. But Christ isn't cursing the fig tree for the sake of the fig tree. Christ is cursing the fig tree for the sake of the disciples, the worshipers. He's using it as an illustration. Isn't that so generous of Christ that he would use a fig tree for an illustration rather than a human being. That he would choose to teach the disciples an important truth using a tree rather than using one of them. There is an important truth that's going to be taught here. And he could have easily have used a person. He chose not to. I have discovered that God offers so many lessons throughout our day, throughout our week, Lessons that can be learned outside of a personal experience of harm done to you. Lessons learned by just looking at nature, looking at what God does with, through, and around nature. Nature including all parts of creation. There is so much to learn about God that you, you should not have to learn through personal experience. So Christ is using a fig tree, teaching the disciples a lesson that they don't have to learn through personal pain. What is the lesson? When Christ came to the fig tree, what did he expect to find? Fruit. What does he not find? Fruit. What is there instead? A lot of leaves. If there weren't leaves, it would have been obvious there was no fruit. The leaves implied that there would be something to eat on the branches. But the implication was a lie. Because when you got close enough to inspect you discover it was all a sham. The leaves were covering the deception. There was no fruit. Christ curses the fig tree. We're going to find that later when they return, you can actually see this passage immediately mentioned in Matthew. Uh, The book of Mark gives it to us at a different time after Christ uh, goes Back to um, Jerusalem, we're going to look in, I'm going to read Mark right here, Mark chapter 11, verse uh, 23. Verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say to this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast in the sea, shall, uh, shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that these things which he shall see uh, shall come to pass. He shall say, he shall have whatsoever he saith, therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. So this is the chapter in Mark 11 where Christ is um, talking to the disciples about the lesson of faith. But if you look earlier in verse 20, you'll see, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and Peter calling to remembrance, saying him, Master, 
Behold, the fig tree which thou cursedest is withered away. So this is the next day of the week. So Christ calls out the fig tree on um, on Monday, and it is on Wednesday, this, the third day of the week, that we find the fig tree is actually withered. It takes a whole day. So what is the lesson? When you claim to be a Christian, you are displaying leaves. You are saying, come look at me. There is something to see here. I am a follower of Christ. I am a believer. But when someone gets close enough for inspection, do they actually see fruit that should be seen on the tree of a believer? For a lot of believers, that doesn't happen. For a lot of believers, they're all leaves and no fruit. They're all talk and no action. They're all head and no heart. They claim a knowledge of God, and maybe they're even saved. They claim a knowledge of service to this king, but there is no love for the king because love attaches action. Christ actually says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. You can't claim to love God if you're not willing to act on it. A lot of relationships fall apart when the word love is used, but the word love has no action attached to it. Don't be the fig tree with leaves and no fruit. What happens? Judgment? What happens? Rejection? What happens? People will come to the tree, see no fruit, and at the very least, be disappointed, at the very most, be affected by your lifestyle, and that effect may cause them to turn away from God. If you're going to claim to be a fig tree, grow some figs. If you're going to claim to be a Christian, have some fruit attached to the claim. Well, Christ goes into the town, comes to Jerusalem. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 now. We're going to jump to Mark. Chapter 11, verse 15. They come to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple, began to cast them out that sold, bought the temple, overthrow the tables, and so on. So we find that Christ uh, dealing with them, the fig tree incident happening before. And then the next day is when he finds the fig tree withered. Now let's go to um, verse 27 in Mark chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and scribes and elders, saying unto him, By what authority... Doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Has Christ already answered this question? The question of who are you, who sent you, and what are you doing? Has that question been answered? Many times over, Christ has answered that question. They are asking the same question because they don't like the answer. They're hoping now to ask the question over and over again to get Christ to say something they can use against him. Christ is not foolish. Christ knows this. So he says, look, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. So what is the question that Christ asks? He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? They reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people, for all the men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. They answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither 
do I tell you by what authority I do these things? Christ was not trying to get around a question. Christ was not trying to avoid a difficult conversation. Christ was trying to call out these Pharisees for their constant harassment. Their time was coming. These Pharisees were going to put Christ on the cross. He knew that. He wasn't going to let them waste the last handful of hours he had left answering questions that have already received a response. When you have someone harassing you, asking you the same question, understand this, they're just trying to waste your time. Or they're trying to trap you, trick you. I remember years ago, I was going door to door with some friends, and we were going in an apartment complex, walking around and inviting people to church, telling them about Christ. And we only had a couple of hours. There were some other things we had to do in the afternoon, so we had blocked about two hours to go to this apartment building. I remember going to one house. I was with a friend. We would go in pairs. And the other young man and myself stopped at one of the apartment buildings. And one of the people in the house was a man who wanted to talk with us. Began talking with us. And after about 20 to 30 minutes, I realized something. This guy was not actually trying to learn truth. He was just trying to keep us from talking to anyone else. And I'll tell you why. Because every question that he had and our response to it was followed by either an antagonistic response or another question going a different direction. He wasn't there to learn anything. Now, granted, we came to him. I get that. But he didn't open up his home to learn anything from us. I walked away. After that house, we were done. The time was up. We ended up getting our car, going home. And I remember thinking, we literally just wasted over like 30 minutes talking to this guy. How many houses could we have talked to? How many people could we have talked to if we had not spent 30 minutes talking to one person who didn't want to know anything, just wanted to waste our time? Time is valuable. And the older we get, the more we realize just how valuable our time is. I challenge you to not let people waste your time. That does not mean you are unkind or cruel to them. It means be wise with the time that you've got. Because the closer you get to the end of that time, the less you're probably willing to put up with people who want to waste it. Christ is in the final week of his life. He wasn't going to let these Pharisees waste his time. Let's go to Mark chapter 12. He began to speak to them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat, built a tower, let it out to the husbandman, and went into a far country. This man did all the work, planted, established the health of the vineyard, and then letting it out basically means he is hiring someone to care for it while he's gone. This husbandman was given a task not to take over the vineyard, but to care for the vineyard in place of the man. At the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive them from the husbandman the fruit. Well, you know the story. They caught him, beat him, sent him away. The master, the owner of the vineyard, sends another servant, verse 4. This time, they threw stones at him, wounded him in the head, sent him away, shamefully 
handled. Didn't just hurt him, they actually embarrassed him while he was there. Again, he sent another. This one, we're told in verse 5, they killed. The master keeps sending people to receive what is due him. The people continue refusing the messengers. Killing some, beating some. In verse 5. Verse 6. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. Maybe they weren't listening because they were just servants that I was sending. People that did not gain or deserve respect. They'll respect my son. So this master sends the son to receive of the husbandmen what was due. Those husbandmen, verse 7, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. They took him, killed him, cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. Obviously, the parable is referring to Christ. And let me tell you, the ones who are doing the beating and the killing are not just common people in the world. They are those who were given the responsibility to care for the things of God. In the Old Testament, that would be the Jews. And it was the Jews who put Christ to death. Specifically, the leaders of the Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests. Those who were given the responsibility to care for the things of God were the ones killing the people of God. The prophets before, the speakers, the leaders who spoke truth, harassed, abused, martyred. Christ comes, and the very people that should have welcomed him with open arms are the ones who put him on the cross. You say, well, Pastor Russ, we would never do that. God has, again, given what he cares about to a husbandman, us, the church. And like the Jews in the Old Testament, we have, for a time, temporary care over what is God's. And when God comes looking for it, do you offer it to him freely? I'm not even talking about finances. I'm talking about what God really owns. You. Your future. Your talents and abilities. When God comes saying, I'm ready to receive what is mine, do you offer it? Or do you say, not interested, it belongs to me now. My life is my life. My future is my own. Everything I own, I got through the sweat of my brow. God says, no, I prepared the vineyard. I gave it to you. Everything you've got is because I allowed you to have it. It's mine. What is your response to God now? Will it be like these wicked husbandmen? Will it be like the Jews in the Old Testament saying, no, this is ours? Verse 10 Have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And is it marvelous in our eyes? The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. 
The builders, the Jews, the leaders rejected Christ. And it is Christ that became the cornerstone of God's kingdom. Don't be so foolish as to reject the cornerstone himself. Verse 12. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. Now, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes are at a point where they recognize Christ is speaking parables directly at them. These parables are not ambiguous. They are not generalized. I'm not sure if Christ was looking in their direction, pointing at them, facing them, but in some way, these guys get it. And they say these parables are about us specifically. They got so angry. It's at this point, I think they finally confirmed in their minds, he's not getting off the hook. We're going to do something about this guy. Regardless of the chaos it might cause, in Jerusalem, Christ is going down. Now, Matthew chapter 22. Let's go back there. Verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, sent forth the servants to call them that were bidden to a wedding. They would not come. Again, he sent forth servants, told them they were bidden. I prepared a dinner. My oxen, the fatlings are killed. Things are ready. Come to the marriage. They made light of it, went their own way. One to his farm, one to merchant's dice. And the remnant took servants and treated them spitely and slew them. This is a very similar parable to that of the vineyard. The king was extremely wroth, we're told in verse 7. Sends his armies, and this time destroys the murderers. Burned up the city says to his servants, the wedding is ready. Those who I bid, the bidden, were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you'll find, bid to the marriage. We're told they go to the highways. They gather, they gather as they found, verse uh, 10, good and bad. The wedding was furnished with guests. The king, the king came to see the guests. He saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. When this king was rejected by those who were first offered the opportunity, the king said, everyone's invited. And did you notice how the invitation went? The servants went looking to seek, to find, to offer personally the invitation to the wedding. Here we are as believers expecting that everyone will come running to our doors, begging to be saved begging to know God. It is our job to go out and seek, as Christ came to seek and to save the lost. These servants go and seek, and they take both the good and the bad. That means those who were respected in the community and those who were rejected in the community, all were invited. God is not a respecter of persons. Every soul is of equal importance to God. All brought to God's kingdom, all brought to the wedding feast. But as the king is walking around greeting the guests, we find in verse 11, one of the guests had not on a wedding garment. He saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he, the guest, was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That is a very interesting verse. We've talked about it before. I'm not going to get into Reformed theology again. We've had that conversation fairly recent about a verse like this. Many are called, few are chosen. In this context, look at what's happening. All were called, right? All of those, the good and the bad, were called. Who was chosen to stay? Only those who accepted the wedding garment. The wedding garment was not forced on them. Otherwise, this man would have been wearing it. This man was called and arrived, but didn't put on the garment upon his arrival, and therefore was not chosen to remain. Reformed theology teaches that whoever God calls gets saved. They have no choice. And yet this parable illustrates the opposite truth. This parable gives us an illustration of what I believe salvation really looks like. God calls all to salvation. And when they come to that point of recognizing they have an opportunity to be saved, they have a choice. Put on the garment, God's way, or keep it off my way. The garment, of course, is a representation of the righteousness of Christ. We're told that be given garments of, uh, of purity in heaven, righteousness. And these garments of righteousness represent the righteousness of Christ on us, over us. But those who would seek to get into heaven on their own righteousness, those who would seek to go into eternal paradise without the salvation of Christ on their own, of their own self-righteousness, will be cast out, not allowed to stay, not chosen to remain. So when this verse says, many are called, few are chosen, it is not saying that few are chosen to be saved. It's saying only a few are chosen to enter heaven based off of the choice they made of putting on the garment or not. But all are called. All were offered. Did you catch what this king said? Friend, why didn't you put on a garment? The person was speechless. They didn't say, I wasn't offered one. They didn't say, you ran out. They were speechless because there was nothing to say. It is obvious the garment was provided and the person refused to put it on. Maybe they thought, well, my clothes are good enough. If the king doesn't like it, he can just deal with it. My clothes look better than that garment. Like many people think, my works are good enough. God will accept it. My works are better than what Christ offers. Surely I'll be okay. No. It's God's wedding, God's rules, and it's pretty simple. Put on the garment. The righteousness of Christ is the garment. And if you refuse to put that on, you can't stay. We don't have any Bible study next Wednesday due to the uh, spring break and the holiday uh, time surrounding Easter. So we'll see you next, not next week, but the week after in two weeks, those joining us online. Hope you can see us this Sunday morning at 11 o'clock for our Easter service. Have a great night.